0: We've got Jake on the science of teams, I'm talking about the magic of creativity, and Dana on the rituals of learning. It's the Learning Nerds Episode 2 coming up now. See, I told you guys we'd have theme music by Episode 2. I like it. We had a cold
1: open. I'm so glad I was off mute or on mute because I was cracking up because I forgot (laughs) this is going to be our new theme song.
2: (laughs) I'm going to be bobbing my head the rest of the
0: afternoon to that.
1: Bob, before we get started, though, you got to explain what that song is before you get started.
0: So, that song actually comes from the bad lip reading people and it comes from their version of the empire strikes back and it's a song that yoda sings called seagulls don't stop me now which it's hysterical when you listen to it but the thing is you've got to you've got to be careful around it because it is the definition of an earbug it's going it, to it will be stuck in your head all day
2: is it as bad as it's a small world <laughs> it can get no, it's, bad, it's yeah. in your head now you're going to be singing it's a small world the rest of the podcast
0: yeah absolutely absolutely so uh, hi everybody this is bob gerard from The talent, what are we? Talent research and innovation. We've just had a reorg, but we're still talent research and innovation, uh, specifically from the Santa Monica Story Lab. And today, the Santa Monica Story Lab is in the front bedroom of the house. So if you hear traffic noise going by, I apologize in advance. We are joined by Jake Gittleson. Jake, hello.
1: Hey, Bob. Hey, everybody.
0: And the man who prevents this from becoming a complete Star Wars podcast, Dana. (laughs) Hey,
2: everybody. Coming to you not far from the Q Center on a glorious day. That's
0: beautiful. That's beautiful. But we do have to talk about Star Wars just for one more second. I promise, Allison, it'll only be for another minute. Solo, you guys, it was a great movie. I don't understand why it wasn't a complete smash at the box office. And, you know, I mean, people called it a flop. I know it wound up costing money to Lucasfilm because they spent a lot of money getting it finished. But I thought it was a great movie. And I just want to encourage all of our listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, go see it in a theater. It's a great movie. I think you guys agree with me on that. Is that right?
2: Well, Bob, I heard that uh, this might actually put Kathleen Kennedy's job on the on the line i don't know about that but i just read an article saying that this might do it for which i
1: think is sad here's here's my take for all those star wars nerds that can't get out of the 70s is to not think of this movie like put away the star wars period actually and just enjoy the movie because i like i went in on it thinking they tried a little bit too hard to make connections but then i walked away thinking huh i actually had a lot of fun with that movie like it was just a lot it was a lot of fun if it was a straight up Western, in my mind, it was uh, a Western in Star Wars world, which was kind of cool. I really enjoyed it. Someone asked me, could you rank this to the other Star Wars movies? I said I couldn't because I just don't see it as that connected of the previous. But that doesn't mean I didn't like it. I really liked it. So if you think of it that way, I think you'll like the movie even better.
2: All right. It's so get us, let's get us back on track. This is a learning yeah. nerds podcast. All right. Yeah, that'll come in the Star Wars podcast. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's right. Um, different, different voices, different stuff.
0: That's right. So to remind everybody of our format, uh, each of us has come prepared with a topic to talk about. We're going to dialogue for a few minutes. We're going to start with Mr. Jake Gittleson talking about the science of teams. So Jake, take us away.
1: All right. Thanks. So yeah, so the so science of teams and just a little bit of context of, of why I'm going to be talking about this. So One of my goals that I've had probably in the last like five, six months or so is that probably even longer, but it's been more of the focus now is that how do we shift our learning into more of those life flow opportunities? So I'm saying life flow rather than workflow, because I'm trying to make sure that we're not learning can happen at any given time. And rather than just thinking during the workflow, again, sometimes when you say workflow, it can be like performance support, all that stuff. I'm really just trying to think of any given time how we can be more aware of what we're learning and how we're learning and so forth. So one of the areas that I've been really interested on is that how could we at least start to research more on is is teaming. And our team specifically did some research probably about a year and a half ago or so on Swift Trust. And then with the research on truly human and learning, a lot of different components on there on how to effectively create uh, teams that can learn together. So that led me to, you know, I just the other day finished a book on wire. It was called Wired to Connect, and it was on the science of, of teaming. And th- this book was written by Britt Andrietta. For those who don't know Britt, she's, she actually used to be, I think, the CLO of lynda.com. And then, you know, I don't know what happened after they got bought up by LinkedIn and, and so forth. But she takes a, when she writes her book, she takes a very science a focused first approach does kind of a recap on what's out there. What do we know from the neuroscience and just human behavior? So she's she again, she's always got a learning spin. But in this end it was like, how can we create more effective teams by you know better creating teams on what we know on how the humans operate. So this rather than going through the book, I'm just gonna I'm gonna give a quick quick recap the first, I think, overall, one of the she kind of sets this book up why talking about coordination versus cooperating and collaboration. Those are the three, and she said that teams usually fall in one of those three buckets. And we probably tend because I, I think the point was is that collaboration was a, a overly used word. We're going to collaborate. We're going to collaborate more often than not. We're probably either coordinating or cooperating. So when I when I think of co, like coordination, the, the the nice phrase or the common phrase is that, oh, we'll stay connected, right? My team and your team will stay connected. And then there's that cooperating, right? Where we might be working together on a mutual objective, but the two teams that we're a part of are the groups of people that we're a part of. We may be working more in silos, right? We have our own task. You have your task. Eventually we'll come together, right? But again, we're not as much in sync and then there's collaboration. And I think collaboration is more, she used the term co-laboring. And I, I really like that. So we really are in sync. We really are working together for that common goal. So again, I think collaboration was really her point. So it's, it's like when we collaborate, communicate effectively, we have a common ground. We can have discussions, discussions naturally. We can be more in sync as a team. And that's where really peak performance comes out. So again, that's pretty much the point of the book. A ton, a ton of science in there. I'm not going to explain it, but hopefully I'll get into it as we discuss here. But the, one, the, the, the thing I wanted to bring up to both of you guys is that at the end of the book, probably at the end, one third, she, had, you know, she put together a model, which I think every author that puts together research and puts, writes a book has to have their own model. So on, th- on this one, there's four, in her model was called the Gates of Peak Team Performance. So I'm going to run That's through good, these gates real fast, and then get you guys' a reaction. So, yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. I thought, I figured everyone loves a good model or a list, and it's always easy to talk about. So, again, the idea here is that these gates are they're very linear, right? In order for a team to be at that peak performance, what do they need to? What needs to take place? So, first gate was safety, and when you're working with other people on your team, you have to feel that others are not going to embarrass you or reject you, right? There's just the beginning part of psychological safety there. And what's interesting about even rejection, and then Bob, you may even know this, you know, working with, uh, with Paul Zach, is that reje- there's, uh, when, when you feel rejected, there's the same regions of your brain actually um, activate from even when like, you do physical pain. So when you have physical pain and rejection, the same parts of your brain activate. So that's a whole nother area that she went into, but it was just kind of fascinating. So safety, number one. We well, want to feel safe with the teams that we work with or the people that work with. Number two, our gate two is purpose. And when they say purpose, they say this we're not talking about a capital P of purpose. We're talking that lowercase P. So when I say capital P, this that's not the grand purpose of life, right? We're just talking more of that lowercase b of what our team's purpose is. We're more in line. And then when me as an individual, I feel more connected as a team when I know I can make some type of meaningful contribution, right? I can personally connect to that purpose. Then eventually, right over time, you'll get to belonging. So, I feel like I truly feel like I belong with this team. This is where the the whole psychological safety really hits in where I feel like I can fail and learn together. I feel like we can have a, a discussion or even solve conflicts better, right? All that, right? And and eventually over time, as you become more of that well, well-oiled machine, you're going to hit gate four on hers, which is peak performance. So over time, that's what it is. So four, four gates, safety, purpose, belonging, and peak performance. So I'm going to turn it over to Bob to get his reactions because what I was thinking is your experience now that first of all this is 30 years almost today right or from yesterday a couple of days ago it was, that was, it, this is your first man, day in Accenture don't,
0: like, don't make me older than I already feel sorry yeah 20 29 <laughs> years ago yesterday was my uh, was the anniversary of my first day at Accenture but I can't really call Eric, it my it was your
2: Accentureversary.
0: Exactly, right. But, but I can't say that I have 29 years of service because I was gone for two years. And I think this is where you're heading, Jake, right?
1: Yeah, exa- exactly. So it's like, so from, I'm going to use your example and of course have you explain it, is that when you think of this model and what I kind of walked through and what what's the difference, what would you say the difference between uh, that you're feeling as a team from when you just last left, right? Because you just last left for two years, I think it was, and then you came back. So how would you kind of compare your your experience knowing this model?
0: I buy it 100%. It totally maps. What was interesting, and I've blogged about this. Maybe we'll we'll link to the blog in the comments section when we post this or something like that. So I don't have to go into too much detail. But four years ago, I got the opportunity to work and do learning at a video game company, which I thought was going to be my dream job. And for a while, it was. It was fantastic. But then things started going downhill and I noticed that my performance was really waning and sorry to be a little crude here, but <laughs> I, I, I remember telling my family that I felt creatively constipated. <laughs> like I, I knew I had good ideas inside, but like I couldn't get them out. I couldn't get things done. And I just kind of felt.
2: There, Bob, Bob, there's medicine for that yeah, type thank of you. stuff. Right, right, right. <laughs>
0: yeah. If you could prescribe some of that to me, that'd be great. Uh, but, but I wasn't getting anything done. And then I, I left the company and I came back to Accenture and actually, you know what, Dana, I remember I had been back for about four days. I was working as a contractor and I was sitting literally where I'm sitting right now. And I just had a conversation with you. Cause I was like, Hey, I'm back. Let's check in. And, and Dana and I had stayed in touch while I was gone. But after that conversation, I went down and I told my wife, Sherry, I said, I feel like the old me is back. Like, I I am back to who I was. And it was such a wake-up call for me. I kept trying to figure out why was that? What was going on? Well, a few weeks after that, I heard Pat Waters, who was the chief HR officer of LinkedIn at the time. And now she's at ServiceNow, I believe. And she talked about that at LinkedIn, their inclusion and diversity program she calls DIBS for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging because belonging is just as important. Well, here's the idea is you can have as diverse of a workforce as you want, and they can be inclusive in terms of like tolerating each other. But if there isn't that sense of belonging, you don't get the benefits that you're trying to get from a business aspect of diversity and inclusion, aside from it just being the right thing to do. You want with diversity and inclusion, you want that to lead to new ideas and better ideas and if you don't have that sense of belonging it's not going to happen and i realized that's what was going on for me was because i w- when i was at the game company looking back on it although i made a lot of good friends there i never really felt like i belonged i think part of it was i was no good at their game <laughs> i never i never really understood it you know as as much as i tried uh, and there were other factors just cultural factors that i think i never really felt like i belonged but when i came back to Accenture I felt like I was back in the family and I did belong and I've thrived since then. So, and thrived in team settings. So Jake, that's why I'm completely bought into this model. Um, I I have seen it in action and it totally makes sense to me.
1: I think too with this model, it's, it's when you, when you look at it, it really is just summarizing a lot of the research that she's already done. And if you go in, when you, at the end of the book, what I really liked is that she takes a, you know, list actions that if you're a leader, um, like a senior manager leader, right. Or somebody that's more of an executive, what you can do to create these types of teams. And then she goes down the list of the different types of levels or roles or whatever you play. I thought that was kind of interesting because again, she focuses more on those those different areas and then brings back a lot of the science of what she's talking about. And then to your point about inclusion and belonging, which is interesting. Um, there's this really good quote that she referenced. This is the one that stuck out to me the most: is that diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance, and I, I just kind of like that simple. It had, had a good visual yep. in my mind when I heard that.
2: Yeah, that's nice.
1: So, Dana, I want to I want to go jump to you now and see. Any examples that you have, like when you first look at that, what what's, what pops in your mind?
2: Yeah, a couple of thoughts come to mind. And uh, l- let me just share a couple of examples uh, where I think we've seen this play out. Recently, Bob and I had the good fortune of being together with um, about four of our other colleagues, uh, some we had never met before and others we had built a relationship with via you know video conferencing and the Skype stuff that we use. And, you know, when I look at the model, the safety, the purpose, the belonging and the peak performance, while while some of us had never met each other in person before, when we had this opportunity and we had a well-defined problem, we just jumped right into the peak performance. We had already established the working relationships right through through virtual means, so we had that safety, and we knew that we we knew who we could banter with and who we needed to be careful with, and you know we had all of that stuff figured out. We also because we had a well-defined problem, I, we had that sense of purpose um, and and because we also had the trust going on, we had the belonging. so what that allowed us to do was get to that peak performance where in a you know four to six hour time frame, uh, we were actually doing some i thought some pretty innovative thinking. Uh, that I believe is going to lead to some transformation around one of our uh, important programs in in the technology yeah, space. Sure. So I don't know, Bob. You mm-hmm. know, when I think about applying this model, uh, I don't know if you had yeah. that same sense, but that that's one example that came to mind. I did totally. Yeah.
1: yeah. So what's what's interesting about that one too? And she talks about this in the book. And and I mean, I know that probably this th- us three here know about this, and many others listening. She mentions the like the the fact of what happens from us from a um like what's what happened to us within our brain like what we're scanning when we see people in person, right? It's, it's, it's there, it it is more effective, right? When, from a teaming side. So one of her tips was like, I understand that, you know, we can't get together all the time. It just doesn't happen, especially on on working globally, but whenever you can, and that was her tip for the executives is that try to make more of an effort to get your teams in a live environment every so often where they can help every everybody on an individual level can work and meet each other and see how you're talking, you know, just your your gestures, your facial expressions, like the, the amount of data that gets downloaded into your brain just by seeing that is is a ton, right? So it's it's very, very useful. And again, further builds that safety because again, you can lose that safety any day.
2: Hey, Jake, maybe, maybe one more example I can share and then you know, we can move on to whatever we need to move on to. But the the other uh, example that comes to mind is you know, recently we had the privilege of hosting about 25 chief learning officers at the Q Center. Uh, various companies, uh, many of the names I could mention you'd recognize. So these are people who are engaged in doing a lot of innovative and creative work. One of the things that happened, and it was almost almost last minute, it wasn't quite last minute, we had a little bit of head start on it, but was the request that Allison had to create a, a pop-up playground. And by that, you know, basically a little tech fair uh, where we could showcase some learning technologies that we were experimenting with and share some of our research around brain science. Uh, you know, you and, and Michelle really jumped to it and put it together. And then I came in Uh, and helped at the event and helped some of the planning. Again, this is one of those things where all three of us, we had that safety. We had that very clear sense of purpose. We knew that we needed to do an excellent job. And so we, we just worked, I think, right through those four gates. We had the safety, the purpose, the belonging, and in the end, created an event that really was exciting for the participants and, you know, Allison was surprised that we hadn't done this type of thing before. And my comment to her, I said, well, that's just what we do as a team. Right. Right. And I think I, at that time I didn't know the model, but, you know, thinking about it, it's, it is what we do at the team because we all have all four of those mm-hmm. gates. That yep, makes
0: sense. So shout out to our teammate, Michelle Voiko, the queen of immersive reality <laughs> and award applications.
2: Yay, Michelle. And and to Allison for sponsoring these types of uh, things. So we have to do shout out to Allison as we always do. Her. Hey Bob, I think we should. I think we should have Allison on one of our upcoming podcasts sometime. We'll do that. We will do
0: that very soon.
1: So the, to, to wrap this section up, the one thing that you know I didn't mention, but totally recommend you guys checking out. Not I mean you can just check out the book. You don't have to, but if you do, you can even re- watch this TED Talk. And his not, his name. I'm going to butcher his name, but it's Uni Uni or Uni. And then hasten, so H A S S O N, and he has this TED talk on neural entrainment. I think it's called or synchrony. I, it's used both terms, but it's the idea that when we are on a common ground, our brains are actually activating the same parts of the brains. So if if Dana and myself, Bob, right now, we could potentially be on the same brave, uh, activating the same parts of the brain. That's what's so fascinating. That's scary. It's, it's it is kind of creepy for us. But it, it is a fascinating subject and just search that out. And that really starts to link into just the power of being together and having that common ground.
0: Yeah. And it is interesting. I was just thinking when you said that, Jake, and we just brought up immersive reality. So yesterday, Jake and I, for the first time, hopped into Oculus Rooms using our Oculus Go virtual reality headsets. And we hung out in there for about 45 minutes. Jake, like I totally felt like I was in the same room with you. It was weird. Even though, yeah, yeah. Even though, you know, you were this crazy avatar with a sci-fi head and <laughs> I only saw part of your torso and your hand and everything like that. Hard to
2: share a bowl of popcorn that way though. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
0: But you know, it, it was amazing. It was, it was incredibly immersive. And so I do wonder if you hopped into an environment like that, according to our tech trend of immersive reality, and that reduces distance with people that you maybe didn't know quite as well, would you have that same effect? I think that's something for us to experiment with yep. too we thinking about teaming. So, OK, well, listen, I'm going to pick it up and I'll actually pick up the pace here a little bit because my my thoughts today are a little bit early. It's more of a preview, but it's something that I have been curious about. And the point of curiosity is about design thinking. So a, a lot of, you know, I was kind of an early adopter of design thinking. I'm a big fan of it. I really enjoy it. I've seen the value of it. But I have been recognizing uh, I would say not quite a backlash but a little bit of questioning in terms of does design thinking really work or does it lead to the best solutions that we can have? And my son came back from from his graphic design program at university and I said something about design thinking, and he was like, oh, that's completely passe, Dad. Like, nobody does design thinking anymore. I'm like, yeah, okay, all right, whatever. But I, I still had the same question, and I, I developed a theory. The theory that I'm testing out is this. I'm wondering if it's not so much, you know, the design thinking methods or the approach or the the way that design thinking works that might lead to a dissatisfaction with the results But I wonder if maybe when our individual people are coming into a design thinking session that they are not quite as creative or innovative as they could be. Or or here's another spin on that is I wonder if we are relying on the magic of people being co-located and running through some techniques and having a whole bunch of post-it notes up on the wall and thinking that that's like the magic ticket to creative solutions when we don't necessarily have the most creative and innovative people in the room. And it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out scenario. So I'm curious as to whether that's the fact. And then what that leads to to solve that problem is how can we help our individuals get more creative, right? Because we, we know we need to be more collaborative. It's in our leadership DNA. But how do we help? How do I help you, Dana? And how do I help you, Jake, as an individual become more creative? So I'm starting to poke around into this and thinking about what are ways to to develop this. So I started talking to some of our colleagues at Second City Works. I've surfed a bunch of articles. I reread the book Orbiting the Giant Hairball, which is a fun book to read if you haven't read it. Check that one out. I've been talking to my good friend Katie Burke. So shout out to Katie Burke. Um, we've kind of decided to explore this whole creativity thing together. Katie connected me with an author and her name is Tina Seelig. Long story short, she's up at Stanford and she talks about creativity and, and teaches a lot. She's got several books out there. And I watched one of her TED Talks and in Tina's TED Talk, she shared a model because we love models, right? We all love a good mm-hmm. model. <laughs> so, so her model was, was called the innovation engine. And I think she had a similar insight to what I have is in order to make innovation work, you need to think about it as an external model with an internal model. So you need to think about innovation in the group sense And then you need to think about it as individuals, like what are we each as individuals bringing to that group in order to really be innovative? And so I'm sure I'll talk about this later as I read more about it. So externally, the factors are the resources, the habitat and the culture. And if you think about those at Accenture, we're we're probably okay. I mean, habitat wise, our our office space can be cool in certain locations. It's still not in others. Uh, We're growing our culture of innovation we're having more resources like training and design thinking and all that kind of stuff that, that help build that. So we're pretty good in that aspect, but let's look at the internal aspects. Uh, We've got knowledge, we've got imagination and we've got attitude. And I would say that at Accenture, we probably have a lot of knowledge and we have inherently creative or, or inherently curious people, which will help build knowledge. But I wonder how we are in terms of innovation and I wonder how we are in terms of attitude. And that's kind of the, the nugget that I want to drop here as we continue on. One of the aspects that kept cycling back in a lot of what I was hearing around being personally creative is how you can cripple yourself with self-limiting beliefs. And it's very similar to what I say when I talk about storytelling and I start with the idea, hey, we're all storytellers. We know how to do it. It's wired up inside us and you just have to tap into that. And I think there's an aspect of that to creativity, that we are all creative and we kind of get the creativity beaten out of us through the educational system, through our experience or whatever. And it leads to uh, it leads to a really quick story I want to share. Today seems to be story day, so that's, that's great. I'm all for that. But I've been taking a writing class, a short story writing class, and we were coming to the end of the term, and we had a really fun activity where we all had to fill out questionnaires, and it was things like, you know, when I write, I feel blank, or I write in this location when I really want to write well. It's all about our process. And one of the questions was, I wish my writing was more blank. So I filled that in and I said, I wish that my writing was more descriptive because I go in with the belief that when I write short stories, that my descriptive prose is really bad. Like, I feel like I'm pretty good at dialogue, but my descriptive prose around kind of setting up the scene and describing the scenery and all that is not really good. When we all went around and we read our answers, the teacher looked at me when I said that. And he was like, had this crazy look on his face. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I said, I just don't feel like my text is very descriptive. And he said, well, as a fan of your writing, let me tell you, your your text is descriptive enough. And I, I don't remember exactly what he said, because as soon as he said, I'm a fan of your writing, like <laughs> <laughs> I went, oh, yeah." <laughs> I have a fan. I can sell one book. (laughs) Exactly, this guy, you know, he's got an IMDb (laughs) entry, and he likes my writing, so that's really cool. But but then all of a sudden I had this aha, which is this is when I think about me writing descriptive prose, I compare myself to J.R.R. Tolkien, right? It's like who, who is the master of spending. 18 pages describing, you know, what the hill looked like that the elves were about to run over. I was going to
1: say he spends he spent too much time on sometimes well, explaining what, what like and, describing and certain situations.
0: Jake, that was the biggest aha for me was because all of a sudden I sat there and I realized... I don't even like reading Tolkien. Like, (laughs) I love the stories. I love the movies. So did I. It's so hard for me. I've tried reading Lord of the Rings probably 18 times, and I've only got through it a couple of times because I just get bogged down in all of that prose. But that's what I think I should be doing. Because other people say that's what good writing is, is having really good descriptive prose. And here's J.R.R. Tolkien, and he's the master. And I was comparing myself to him, and it wasn't even something that I liked. That was all coming from other people. So that's what I honed in on as one of the things that might be limiting our personal creativity is what are those beliefs that you have about yourself that aren't true? And what are those beliefs about what you should be doing. And maybe what you should be doing is not really what you think you should be doing in order to be creative. So those are my thoughts. What are your guys' reactions to that? I got
2: all sorts of ideas that that sparked. And, you know, one of it is, Jake mentioned earlier, the neuroscience stuff. I I think there's a lot of the principles that we talk about as durability principles that actually apply to creativity. For example, the whole aspect of being generative is creating something new, right? It's creating something that's your own. And um, so I think there's probably a lot we can learn or transfer from what we know about brain science that will facilitate that that type of creativity. I think back early on when you first started talking about this, Bob, I thought back to one of my first days of working at Accenture at that time. It was Arthur Anderson and company. And I walked into a manager's office and here's this big, it's a three foot by four foot chart. That has all sorts of small boxes. I had to actually you know put my nose close to it to read the text in it and the the funny thing about it it was the the creativity methodology right which you think about it and and it's so i mean it 's it 's very much an oxymoron because here you have this creativity here 's exactly how you do it lock step right i 'm sure there are some magic parts to it, but it was not found in this in this large creativity methodology but I have wondered I have wondered if there There could be some type of creativity or curiosity curriculum that we mm-hmm. could build out, right, and it might be in part thinking about what are some of the durability principles but as we've done some of the research on extreme learners and uh, the the smart learner stuff that Jake 's been doing, you know one of the things we 're always finding is that these folks really the people who are really applying smart learning principles, the people who are um, really extreme in their learning have a a natural curiosity and they figured out how to feed that. And that natural curiosity feeds into, into creativity and making connections that us commoners have a hard time making.
1: So to go back to your design thinking point, Mm -hmm. um, I've been struggling with this myself and I think I'm, I'm pretty confident this came out of the D school, some research that they're collaborating with, uh, which makes sense. Is that, I mean, if you think of this situation, a lot of the des, quote unquote design thinking sessions that we do, most of the times they're, we're trying to ideate, right? Brainstorm. Um, I know there's more into it that other groups do. But the research that they did has said that when we try to tell people that just the, the idea of saying, let's be creative, just saying that. Puts us mm. into a limited mindset. It actually makes us less creative because we're forcing ourselves to be creative. And I think of that personally all the time. I feel like I'm most creative when I'm I step away, when I actually yeah. am reflecting a little bit more about what I if I heard something or read something or you know just had a good interesting discussion. I'm I'm, I'm better at coming up with things kind of in a in a different area rather than a, a segment or space that we say let's be creative because i i do when I, I get together a lot of uh, austrian this call i know we get we bring in to come into a lot of calls and say okay we got the creative minds let's go think like as if we have all these ideas <laughs> but the thing it, yeah. it puts it, it kind of it, it from that science what they're saying is that it it stops you it, it like you hang up and that's that's what that's what it is so
2: Jake, that reminds me of a story. So in, in high school, I, I, have, I have what I consider a situational sense of humor. So I'll look at a situation. I'll find funny things in it. And, and I was so graduated from high school. And then I came back after first couple of years of college, visited with one of my buddies that I used to hang out with all the time. And, and we went out with some of his friends. And he said, yeah, this is my friend, Dana. He's one of the funniest guys I know. Say something funny, Dana.
0: <laughs> Good luck with that.
2: Yeah. Right. So it's kind of like, exactly. I was like, duh. And everybody's looking at it. Yeah, this guy's really funny. (laughs) But it's like, I I think it's, it's emphasizes the point that you just made, right? If you say, okay, time to be creative, be creative. And sometimes we do that, you know, Bob tying back to your initial thought. Sometimes we do that in design thinking. It's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. You've got three minutes to get out all of the brilliant ideas in your head. It's like, oh, pressure's on. Well, when pressure's on, sometimes that's not the time we're most creative. So one other thing that came to mind when you were talking about how, you know, when we're young, you know, we're often really creative. The, the the thought came to mind is you know if you have imaginary friends when you're little when you're a kid it's really cute Everybody goes oh look he's playing with some you know imagine but if you have an imaginary friend when you're a
0: grown up they lock you up right
1: you're crazy that's why I don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> but it's true I mean you we we I mean we kind of lose our well I don't just say lose our creativity but we're kind of told not to in certain aspects because you see you see your kid and you're like man. It's just what they think of. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. Okay. So exploration of creativity, it's going to keep going. You'll hear more about it, folks. But let's go ahead and move on. Dana, why don't you bring us home for the rest of the podcast?
2: All right. Awesome. So, you know, we are just enamored sometimes with repeatable architectures or templatizing of things. And we do that with good intent, right? Because if we can templatize a good design, that means it's going to be repeatable. It's going to be cost effective. People won't have to go through the brain power of creating it. Um, it unfortunately, the... That templatization over a year, the years, has created some learning traditions or learning rituals that are sometimes contrary to getting the best outcome. So let me just toss out a couple of examples, and I'm gonna, as I'm tossing these examples out, I want you guys to be thinking of a a few examples that you might have. Uh, come across or maybe even, maybe even designed. I know I've designed some of these myself. (laughs) So, so here's a few example of learning traditions or learning rituals, Um, creating virtual learning sessions that are one hour or creating a CBT that is one hour. Why, why, why are they one hour? It may be just because it's convenient to schedule it in Outlook but there, there's nothing saying that an hour is a magic amount of time. We know that from TED Talks and from other things. But so so one hour, that's one example. Another learning ritual might be at the beginning of a class, an ILT, everybody introduces themselves. Right? And you know how that happens, right? One person starts off and, and they maybe say a few things and then somebody else, they decide that you need their entire life's history. And by the time you get done with it, you've already eaten up the first hour of the class, Well, there's good intent behind that, and we kind of do that as a ritual, but is there a different way that we could approach it, or is it even really needed? Another learning ritual might be stating the objectives up front. At the end of this training, you will learn X, Y, and Z. Why do we do that? There may be some reason from the the idea of setting the context, but do we have to say it in context of these are objectives of the course? Bob, you'll love this one, right? I mean, the use of PowerPoint, right? That, that is a ritual for us. And, and sometimes some of the designs are use of PowerPoint with lots of words on them rather than lots of pretty pictures. Maybe uh, another one might be cramming the agenda so full that you can't really, can't really breathe. Or here's another one that really, you know, we're trying to move away from this, but designing a learning solution as a point in time. So as an experience rather than part of a, a learning journey. So, you know, there's a lot of these rituals and again, a lot of times they were created with good intent um, and and sometimes they're appropriate, but I think too often we just accept some things as the norm as we're designing training and we don't take a step back and shake things up at all. So uh, what are your thoughts? What do you guys think about the idea of learning rituals and shaking things up a little bit?
1: There's a lot of them. A lot of them I mean so one one of them that came to my mind when you're talking about it. I was thinking not necessarily in in our learning events or programs, right I was thinking of as if we assume that a leadership or a supervisor or someone that is probably a level above us has all the answers mm. rather than someone that is either a peer or not a peer or maybe under two, right is that we put a lot of ownership on again, assume that someone above has a lot of, uh, has all the answers to help in the learning process, you know, beyond that. So that was the first one that jumped in my mind.
0: I was, you know, I I was curious about when you're talking about the rituals, like how much does that rely on templates, right? Like, you know, kind of the, the templatized approach for developing learning or the formulaic approach for developing learning that winds up ingraining these types of behaviors that just are so hard to get out of, you know, it, it so I, I think as a learning designer, you know, I could laugh and say, well, like, I, I feel like I've been trying to break those rituals for 39 years now. I think you have. Think and you and have. There, there's yeah. a lot of ways where I feel like I have, but I still get locked into silly things like that. And we had an experience like that recently when we were refining the schedule for MD Momentum. We had a day where it was just feeling very full and we were we were struggling with what do we keep and what do we cut and how do we frame it up and everything like that. And I realized that we were making an assumption going into that, that everything had to be in half hour blocks, right? Oh. Like you couldn't have something that lasted 20 minutes. It either had to be 30 minutes or an hour. And why? Exactly why? Right. Right. And all of a sudden, yeah. we're like, you know, we could make that part 20 minutes and that part could be 40 that unlock the floodgates and, and things went on. But, you know, you're you're absolutely right, Dana. And it's like it, it's habit. It's bad habit. And particularly the introductions at the beginning of a school it drives me nuts. I don't know how much value it ever provides.
1: And Hi, I'm Jake. I've been here for ten years. Well, I'll tell you why.
0: I, I'm an XYZ. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, I'm I am very narcissistic. I know that. But I know that w- when we do that, all the way up while people are introducing themselves, all the way up until the time that I go, I'm rehearsing in my mind what I'm gonna say. I am too. And then after I do it, I'm listening to everybody and I'm trying to say were they as interesting or as funny as I was.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, right. so, and I, and I don't yep. know who that person was. Right. Right. So I, I mean, I think, I think, you, uh, go ahead, Jake, you got another point you're going to make? No, I oh, don't. Well, no. You know, uh, well, here, nope. Here's what I was just going to add yeah. is the purpose of doing that is still good, right? Like you want to no, do yeah, intent. community in the room.
2: Right.
0: Absolutely. Right. But, but what are the other ways that we could do that, yeah. that would be more effective?
2: Right. So the point is don't, don't take the templatized approach right don't take that approach and just assume that that's going to be good or you know it may have been good 10 years ago or 5 years ago but let's shake it up let's make it more interesting right and and we can do that like for example with the onboarding stuff right have people jump in and start playing A game right away. They're going to get to know each other as they're working at the table level, and then they'll get to socialize over lunch and breaks. And if at some point you feel you still need to do that, don't do it at the beginning. Do it later. Or, you know, here's another one that that I love too, is why does the instructor have to be at at the front of the classroom? Right. We always put them at the front. It, it's much more interesting if the faculty actually wanders around and teaches from different vantage points. And, and you know, if someone's not paying attention, they stand right by them. All of a sudden, they start paying attention.
0: Well, they have to be at the front of the room because that's where they advance their PowerPoint slides from.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that part. <laughs> and project our computer. Yeah, they have so to do that.
0: Another
2: example that comes to mind is several years ago, I was uh, I, I was part of creating a rapid e-learning uh, approach, right? And it was for the first time, it was a way that because what we're having we're having people come to us and say my sponsor needs um you know they need a course they don't have any budget, and they don't have, uh, you know, really any time to create anything. And, and 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 by the way, we need it day after tomorrow, right? So this was the problem: no budget, limited time. And so we came up with this tool that would allow them to cram a bunch of powerpoints into and uh, into a presentation and talk over it. And it was it was okay, and it could be used effectively. But what happened? We produced a couple of them that that were relatively nice and served the purpose. And many of them were not a full hour which was awesome but what happened is that that became the the new hammer everything around it every solution was a nail so you ended up getting everything created as rapidly learning right so you started cranking out this garbage CBT that nobody liked and nobody into, but it was it was fast and it was cheap that became a learning ritual And I, I you know I think we still do some of that at some times but so one more little twist on this and then and then we'll wrap it up so the other twist is Asking the question of what rituals are in the making. And I think, Bob, you hit on one earlier, right? With design thinking, with with the recent push to have everybody become design thinking literate. And I, like you, I'm a big fan of design thinking, but it's not the solution to everything, right? right. We we can't have, using my knowledge, we can't have design thinking become the hammer to every learning design nail that we we encounter. Mm-hmm. Design thinking has its place and it's great. But it's not going to solve every problem. And I think we're in danger of making design thinking become a ritual as the, the learning design process. Yeah. Right.
1: And, and my, my final point to all that is like we we talked about a lot of this is that learning is really a science and an art. And there's so much yeah. of an art form here that we can that doesn't we can't do to a template. Yeah. Don't think of templates, yep. just think of what can you do differently. And I think that's always the fun part of it.
2: So another, just one more tradition that that I think is in the making, and and actually we maybe have lived it for a while, but that is that any technology that happens to be in the life cycle, in the the hype cycle, is something we should figure out a way to use, whether or not it makes sense, right? <laughs> an, an example would be, you know, VR is the big thing, right? Well, okay, let's create a swimming course in VR. Well, you know, let's just put people in a swimming pool, right? <laughs> So anyway, uh, just a little bit of rant about traditions and rituals. Let's shake things up a little bit.
0: Yeah, great. So Dana, you wanted to shake up this podcast a little I bit. I do, right? you yeah. One more. So, uh, so as we close down today, uh, Dana, try something new with us here.
2: All right, so I want to try something new, and we'll only do this for a couple of minutes. So if you're listening, if you're still listening, listen just a little bit longer. This is going to be something I call the lightning round. So Bob and Jake, as learning professionals – I want you to give your one or two sentence reaction to the word or the phrase that I share. All right. So here's the practice one. All right. Uh, And Bob, you're going to go first. We're just going to alternate back and forth. So
0: Bob, immersion. Uh, Leads to more engaged learning. I'm really excited about it. Jake, immersion.
1: I feel and smell it. (laughs) All right. There You wanted mind. something that first yeah. comes to my mind. That's exactly what I had.
2: Something <laughs> brief. Yeah, I better be careful when I ask you what's the first thing that comes to Jake's mind. All right, Jake, you might want to give it like 10 seconds See, of thought. See, I can
1: be creative. All right. ask me to be creative.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, they're perfect. So so you guys have this down, right? You know how we want to do it. So Jake, you're yeah. going to start with this next one. Uh, so the next word is story.
1: Pixar. <laughs>
0: See, I told you. Bob. <laughs> the magic key to learning Ooh. and
2: understanding. All right. Bob, you're first on this one. VR and learning.
0: Great for the right reasons, based on exactly what we were just saying. When, when it works the way it should, it's fantastic. But if you're trying to force fit it, eh, eh. Okay, Jake, VR and
1: learning. Mine's a lot of potential, but I was going to go with the same thing as Bob, which is a lot of potential for certain specific areas, not everything.
2: All right. Two more. Performance support. Jake, what comes to mind when I say performance support?
1: In the workflow, how to in the workflow. So how to documents in the workflow.
0: All right, Bob. So two quick thoughts on it. First, I think that's the key opportunity for augmented reality, not just in our industry, but across the world is augmented reality uh, for for performance support is exciting. Number two, you're still going to have to memorize stuff.
2: All right, and here's the last one, and this is completely off the wall. Food truck.
0: Best restaurants in L.A. by far.
1: There are a ton in Portland, Oregon that are awesome, and I have no idea of the names, but a ton. Oh, they're they're not food trucks. They're not food trucks, but whatever. They're the same thing. Right, they're they're carts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very specifically, yeah.
2: Yeah, so not, not much to do with learning on that last one. But since uh, Bob lives near Santa Monica, I know Santa Monica has all sorts of food trucks. So that wraps it up. There's our lightning round. Thanks, guys. And thanks for a great podcast.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. And thanks to everybody. Thanks to our patron saint, Allison Horn. And thanks, as always, to you. Let's cue up the closing music. Thanks to our listeners, you. And please give us your feedback on this podcast. We're having fun doing it, so we're going to keep doing it. But if you're getting anything out of it, let us know and things you'd like to see would be great. So on behalf of Dana Koch, Jake Gittleson and myself, Bob Gerard, take it easy. Always be learning. Always be teaching. We'll see you next time.